If you have a Bible, and hopefully you do, if not, there's Bibles back there for you. You're welcome to take those. Uh, Open with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We'll start in verse 25 here. We've been working our way through this series in the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke, and much of the book, as we've said, uh, is about God's spirit bringing about God's kingdom through the person and work of Jesus. And it's about uh, not only the gospel writer trying to answer this question, who is Jesus, who is this man that we're dealing with, but also answering the question, well, what does that mean for us? How how then should we live? And so in this passage that we'll read this morning, we'll get a greater sense of of who Jesus is and what he's calling us to. And I want to just jump right into this. In Luke chapter 10, I'll start in verse 25. And it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, very typical Jesus, very Socratic. He responds to the question with another question. He says, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answers, Well, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? God, again, I pray that you would help us see who our neighbors are. I pray that we would have eyes for our neighbor, love for our neighbor, love for one another. God, be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. So that's a pretty good question, right? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a critical question. Um, Maybe it's the most important question that we'll ever ask of ourselves or of God that we'll ever consider. It it, it may be the most important question that the Bible answers. In fact, there's another passage. This story is told uh, not only in the Gospel of Luke, but also in the Gospel of Mark. And in the same story there in Mark, um, the lawyer asks, what's the most important commandment? Right? What, 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 what is, what's the most important thing I can do? And Jesus' response is the same. There's, there's a slight difference in how each of these gospel writers tell the same story, um, but the main points are the same. There is this initial question about how do I get eternal life? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Or, or what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing for me to do? And then Jesus either answers directly or Jesus will affirm what the lawyer says. And he'll say, the most important thing, the way for you to inherit eternal life is to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke, there's a sense, uh, and and if you've been with us, we started our series on the Gospel of Luke uh, at the end of last year. So we're coming on a year. We're, We're taking this extended series. Luke is a very long book. Um, we're taking this extended series, uh, God willing, probably for a couple of years, and we've just taken little breaks throughout. So we just finished our series on the fruit of the Spirit. We did Seven Deadly Sins, uh, I think in the summer. Uh, so we're picking back up in this Gospel of Luke. And as we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, and we see throughout the Gospels, that, that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they don't really know how to, how to interact with them. They don't know what to make of him. And again, so Luke is trying to answer this question, who is this man? And so a lot of times these religious leaders, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him. And there's a sense in Luke, I mean, it just says that that this lawyer is engaging Jesus to test him. We see that in verse 25. 
Now that's all it says, so we don't know exactly what's going on. Maybe he's looking, uh, maybe he's looking for a fight. Maybe he's looking to, um, to confront or to trap Jesus like many of the other religious leaders have tried to do throughout the Gospel of Luke and, and the rest of the Gospels. Maybe, maybe he's just trying to show his own smarts, right? He just wants to, they're in public, they're interacting, there's people around. He's now uh, engaging this young celebrity rabbi, and now he's got a stage with him. And he asks this question, what's the most important commandment? What must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, of course, no matter what this man's motive, Jesus is unfazed. Jesus handles this man with great uh, love and with grace. And Jesus responds with his own question, well, what is written in the law? How do you read the law? He sort of puts it back on this man. He puts it back on the lawyer. What does the law say? What What do the scriptures say about inheriting eternal life? What does scripture say the most important commandment is? Now, the Jews, they would note um, there are 613 commandments in the Torah. 613 commandments in the Torah. The Torah is uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, the book of the law. And there are, of those 613, there are 248 positive commandments, right? So those are things like... Uh, you should believe in God, that you should worship God alone, that this is how you make a proper sacrifice, and so on. So there are 248 positive commandments, and then there are 365 prohibitions. And that would be something like don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't worship false gods, false idols. And so it was not uncommon for the Jews of the day to to find these new teachers or these rabbis or these experienced sages and they would find them and say, which is the most important? We've got these 613, but come on, like let's boil it down here. What's really critical of me to do? What's the most important? How can I inherit eternal life? What's important for me not to get wrong, right? And depending on the rabbi, he may respond with something like, the most important thing is for you to remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. It's very important. It establishes you a new rhythm in your life. Some rabbi may say, you need to serve the Lord your God. That's the most important commandment. That's what we were created for. That's what we're really supposed to do. Or do not covet your neighbor's property because they know that this this spirit of envy will just destroy you from the inside out. They would respond in these various different ways depending on the rabbi. There was this one story of this ancient rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who was a, uh, another Jewish rabbi in the first century. And one of his disciples came up to him and he said, Rabbi, I want you to tell me the whole law while I stand on one foot, right? Meaning, how can you summarize this thing? What's the elevator pitch of the law? What's the most important thing? And the rabbi said, very simply, uh, whatever is hateful for you, don't do that to anybody else. Like, that's it. He says, the rest is commentary, so go and study the law. This, this story of the lawyer here uh, is very similar to the story of the rich young ruler, right? They're asking the exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I lack? And I think that's a sense that we all share, right? There is a sense in us that, that we, we are not as we should be, that this world is not as it should be, that something, something is amiss, And we want to make sure we get it right. What do I lack? And here in Luke's version, Jesus lets this man answer his own question. And the man responds, "Um, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Seemed straightforward enough, right? And this is exactly what Jesus himself says when asked that question in the other passages. What is the most important commandment? That we should love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. This is actually a very famous quote. It's a very important quote. Since 200 years before Jesus was born, uh, even up until today, this prayer has been recited daily by certain religious Jews. This prayer is known as the Shema, which is Hebrew for, for listen or hear. It's taken from Deuteronomy 6 where the passage says, Listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and we should love him with our heart and our soul and our strength. This is the beginning of the prayer that commands us not only that we should love the Lord God, but that also our love for God should really permeate every other part of our lives and that our, our homes and our children and our families, our community should be impacted by that love. I'll read for us from Deuteronomy 6. In verse 6 it says, In these words that I command you, this is the, the next few statements of the prayer, In these words that I command you today, they shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You should talk of them when you sit down. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Jews recited this daily to remind themselves, as we've talked before, we are a forgetful people. They were a forgetful people. They need to be reminded, they need to see it all the time, no matter what they were doing, that their love of God, their, their ability to listen to his word must impact every area of their lives. Every piece, whether they walk or sit or lie down or rise, they are binding God's word to everyday life. The Shema commands us to, to love the Lord with every little piece of us. And it breaks it down like this. It says, uh, you should love the Lord God with your heart, with your soul, with your strength. To, to love with our hearts, what does that mean? What does it mean when the scriptures command us to love the Lord God with all of our hearts? To love the Lord God with our hearts means that we must, we commit our wills to him. Right? We commit our agendas to him. Our, uh, one writer commenting on this passage says, the heart is the command center of the body. It's the seat of our emotions. It's the place where decisions are made. It's the place where our plans are hatched. It is the center of our inner being. It controls our feelings, our emotions, our desires, our passions. The heart is where religious commitment takes root. And we understand this, right? We understand what it means to, to love someone or to love something with our heart. It drives us. So what, what might it look like to not love the Lord our God with our hearts. Maybe, maybe you're regularly impressed with good Bible teaching. Maybe, but maybe you're rarely broken emotionally for your own sins or for the sins of our community. Maybe you enjoy serving those around you, serving your community, serving your church, serving your friends and family, but you rarely pursue this relational intimacy with the Father. It's about doing or about knowing, but not about experiencing love and intimacy through prayer and meditation. Do you love him with your heart? This is a sort of assessment. 
We're trying to diagnose the problem, right? And, and what does it mean to the love the Lord God with our souls? To love with our souls means that we commit our ultimate concerns and being to Him. He said, everything that I am, all, all, of, all of what I want, all of who I am, God, I'm laying down at your feet. Do with me as you will. Again, David Garland on, his past, on this passage says, the soul is our source of vitality in life. It is our motivating power that brings us strength of will. Maybe you regularly read your Bible. I hope that you regularly read your Bible. Or maybe you attend church every week, and I hope that you do. But are you motivated in those activities by a desire to prove yourself or improve yourself, to justify yourself, which is what that lawyer was trying to do, Scripture says, rather than by a desire to know Jesus, to hear from Jesus, to be changed by Jesus? That's what it means to love the Lord God with our souls. Do you experience fresh insight from the Holy Spirit? Is your soul parched God is calling us to love him with every part of our being our, our, our mind, our soul and also our strength, what does that mean, what does it mean for us to love the Lord God with our strength, it means to, to commit our physical strength and our resources to him, right our, our time, our, our money our experiences, our gifts our, uh, who we are, like God has given us these things, he's blessed us with these things, he's given us these resources and he's calling us to give it all to him That's the Lord just speaking, right? This type of love that God is calling us to, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. It's, it's the type of love that's costly, isn't it? It's a, it's a type of love that's, that's risky. It's a type of love that, that really requires much of us. He is demanding, as it were, everything from us. And this is the most important command in Scripture. This is how we inherit eternal life, according to Jesus. But it's interesting here that Jesus actually changes the Shema. This is a prayer, again, this is a prayer that all of these Jews knew by heart. They would recite daily. And Jesus sort of flips the script. He, he changes the Shema. He says, not only are we to love the Lord God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our strength, but we are also to love him what? With our minds. With our minds. He says, uh, David Garland, he says, our love for God requires more than just emotional responses or swirls of activity. We must love the Lord God with our intelligence too. How many of us get our minds lit up by the scriptures? Devote ourselves to thinking about what is pure and lovely and holy. I think we are, each of us, tempted to uh, love the Lord God with only maybe a piece of ourselves or a couple pieces of ourselves, but we have become very good at compartmentalizing our lives. And as a result, and many of us have experienced this, we live very fractured lives. I know some of us feel that way. We live as though our lives aren't holistic. We live as though our lives are, we're just trying to do our best to hold this all together because there is no real cohesive whole. It's because we compartmentalize and we think of it like this. We think our relationship with God, right, our spiritual life, 
It doesn't have anything to do with our, our money or our sex life or our schedules, right? Our relationship with God doesn't have anything, our, my, my relationship with him doesn't have anything to do with the way I, the way I make plans or the, way that, the agenda that my life is following. What I, what I really want for myself, it's not affected. Our spiritual lives have nothing to do with our physical daily activities. Our, our relationship with God has nothing to do with our relationships with one another. And yet, we've got it all wrong. And so our lives are fractured. God is, God is calling us to worshiping him, to loving him, to giving ourselves to him utterly and completely. Our hearts, our soul, our strength, and our mind. He's calling us to something very costly. For some of us, again, it's easy to love with our heart and our emotions. We're emotional people, right? It's easy for us to think about it in those terms, but it's very difficult maybe for some of us to do the hard work of service to our community and to our neighbors, right? The service that God requires of us. For others, maybe it's easy to love with our strength. It's easy to, to be busy for God. It's easy to do for God. Maybe it's even easy for you to give or to serve, but very difficult to sit at his word, to, to pray, to meditate on scripture, to slow down, to, to pour over the text of the Bible and to, to meditate on it, to let, it, let God's voice penetrate our hearts, to let it change our minds and change our thoughts, to engage Scripture intellectually as it demands. Maybe for others still, it's easy for us to bury our head in books, right? To really just spend all of our time thinking about theology, listening to sermons, but never really being stirred in our souls, about our own sin, about God's grace in our life. We never let our eyes swell with tears over conviction or love. And God says, that's not, how, that's not how I've called you. That's not who I've created you to be. That's not what I've called you to. I've called you to something much deeper than that. I've called you, and it's freeing. For, it feels like, it feels really demanding, and it is, Right? If God says, I want you to love me with everything that you are, he is demanding everything, and yet there's a sense that if we only loved him with a part of us, that he knows the rest would just be out of order. The rest wouldn't work like it should. And so he's calling us, this is a grace that he's calling us to, to love him with every little bit, to pursue him with every little bit that we are. We worship him with all we've got. We hold nothing back. We, we open up, as it were, the dark closets of our hearts. We're, we're good at hiding and good at hiding things. And God says, bring it to me. Turn the lights on. Open the doors up. Fill your mind and thoughts with God's creativity and beauty and mystery and complexity. This, his unbelievably loving words that he's spoken to you. Meditate on them. Let them overwhelm you. This is the greatest commandment. This is how you inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus, he not only adds to this Shema, but he changes it. He, he in fact, adds another commandment. He says, it's not just one commandment, it's two. Not only must we love God with everything that we are, but we must love our neighbors as ourselves. That's a tall order, right, church? 
He's calling us to something deep here. In Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 22, on these two commandments of love, right? Loving God and loving our neighbor, loving God with everything that we are, loving our neighbor as ourselves, on these two commandments of love, the law and the prophets hang. When you summarize it, when you ask, what's the most important thing? This is the most important thing. Philo, who was a first century uh, Jewish philosopher, and really many commentators uh, throughout the centuries have agreed that um, the first five Ten Commandments, the, the Ten Commandments are divided relatively evenly, and the first five Ten Commandments uh, can be summed up as essentially love God. And the second five commandments can be summed up essentially as love one another, love your neighbor. These commands cannot be separated. As much as we want to separate them, maybe, as much as we want to think, yes, I love God. Yes, I've given myself to him. Yes, I've devoted myself to him. You even feel maybe affection for him. But then there are those people. And you think, I just can't believe they voted like that. I can't believe they said that thing. I can't believe they look like. How many of us can, you know, I want to amen. Aren't you glad the elections are over? My gosh. God is calling us this deeper kind of love, and we don't have the luxury of celebrating our love of him for our love of our brothers and sisters. St. Augustine says, whoever therefore thinks that he understands the scripture, is if you think you understand the scripture, or really any part of it, but you do not build this double love of God and neighbor, you don't understand it at all. You've missed it. 1 John 4, we read a passage earlier. He says this, there is, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. How many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of us live lives dominated essentially by fear? Most of our decisions are motivated by fear. How we, how we parent, how we are in relationships with one another, how we think about our money, so much of that is really dominated by fear. Or fear, fear of loss, fear of abandonment, fear of getting things wrong, fear of, fear of finding ourselves in a, in a terrible situation we can't get out of. And God says, look, there, there's no fear in love. Live a life motivated not by fear, but by love. In fact, this love will drive out that fear. Think about how, how clarifying it is to boil your life down to, I'm going to love God with everything I am, and I'm going to love other people. With the same intensity that I love myself. He says this, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, why do we love, church? Because he first loved us. In fact, if anyone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. That's the Bible. That's not me talking. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. You don't. You've misunderstood something. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Are you hateful in your heart to your brother or your sister? Are you hateful in your heart to those around you, your employer, your employees, your coworkers, maybe, maybe even your family, your parents, your political opponents, right? Does this hatred grow in you? This anger grow in you? And God says, that's not the life you're called to. If, if you consider yourself a God-loving Christian, 
Scripture gives you this warning. If you say you love God but you hate your brother, you're a liar. You are not who you say you are. And then Jesus makes really clear, this is uh, maybe as difficult as the first command. He says, I want you to love your neighbor, what? As yourself. As yourself. So Jesus is making really clear that we are not called merely to, to love our neighbors, but to love them like we love ourselves, that we are, we are called to this complete giving of ourselves. Think about how committed you are to yourself. That's a lot, right? Think about how much you love yourself. Think about how much you love your things. Think about how committed you are to your own agenda, to your own ideas, right? And it's as though Jesus is pulling us aside and saying, you know how much you love yourself? Oh, man, that's a lot. I mean, it, it, it takes you over. I want you to love all these people around you like that. I want you to love, like, like these people here? Yeah, those two. I want you to love your neighbors like you love yourself. As much as you think about yourself, as devoted you are, uh, as devoted you are to yourself, as loyal you are as to yourself. I want you to have the same unwavering loyalty to your neighbor's agenda as you have to your own. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Luke's account differs in one important way from Mark's account of the same story. The story in Luke ends with the lawyer asking, uh, this is a pretty important question. And again, he's trying to sort of think, what is, the, what is the smallest amount that I can do to sort of inherit eternal life or to be brought into the kingdom? And so at the end of this passage, the lawyer asks, okay, well, then if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor, right? And he kind of tees us up for this uh, story that Jesus gives on the Good Samaritan. John Wesley will answer this question. Your neighbor, that is not only your friend, not only your kinsman, not only your acquaintance, in fact, not only the virtuous, not only the friendly, but not only him that loves you or that prevents or returns your kindness, but every child of man, every human creature, every soul that God has made, not accepting him whom you have never seen, whom you know not either by face or by name, not accepting him who you uh, know to be evil, who you know to be unkind, who you know to be ungrateful, unthankful. Him that uses you. Him who persecutes you. Him too you must love. That's who our neighbor is. Love is at the center of the gospel. Love is at the center of what Christ is calling us to. And Jesus says he's right. When the lawyer responds, here's what the law says, here's what I think is the most important thing, then Jesus says, you're right, if you just follow these two commandments, you'll inherit eternal life. This is, these two together, that's the most important thing. You've answered correctly, he says in verse 29. Do this and you will live. And yet, if you, if you read that, if you're like me, and I feel like if we're honest with ourselves, we come to that point and we're still at a loss aren't we? It's, a, it's an utter impossibility to do on our own. You see what God is calling you to? God is calling us to love him with every little bit of ourselves and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he says, yeah, if you just do that, you're going to be okay. And we go, I can't just do that, right? 
I, I can't do that on my own. This is, this is a commandment beyond my own strength. This is a commandment beyond my own ability, beyond my own capacity. We can't love God perfectly with every part of ourselves all the time, right? We can't love our neighbors perfectly with the same intensity and devotion as we have with ourselves all the time and without exception. This is a supernatural work of the Spirit. This is something beyond us. In, in Mark's version of the story, it's interesting because the lawyer adds that this commandment is much more than all the offerings and the sacrifices. This law requires more than any offering or sacrifice I could make. It's more than me, God. I can't, I can't do it. Here's the law, and all the law has done is expose me for what I am, which is incapable of doing just these two simple things that you've called me to, loving God with every bit of myself and loving those around me as much as I love myself. God, I can't do it. I can't do it. The law confronts us. It confronts us with our own inadequacies, and yet the gospel, it's the good news, right? The gospel is the good news that this law has been fulfilled for us. And it's only in experiencing this overwhelming love of God that we can be compelled out, empowered to love one another. You see, this, this law cannot be fulfilled on his own. This, this lawyer is looking literally into the eyes of the man who fulfilled the law for him, and he's asking him, what must I do? I don't know what to do, and yet this man in front of him has fulfilled the law and the prophets perfectly. John says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. But you see, church, that Jesus loved us with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. He loved us that much. And he says, I'm calling you to be utterly perfect. That's, you know, you read the Gospels, and that's what Jesus says. He says, I want you to be perfect as I am perfect. How many are ready, how many are ready to, like, throw their hands up and say, yeah, I'll, I can do that. I'm pretty good already, but perfect, pretty close. Jesus says, I want you to be, as, I'm, I'm demanding. I'm demanding utter perfection from you. I'm demanding that you love the Lord God with every little inch of your being. I'm demanding that you love your neighbor as yourself. And we say, God, help us. We can't be perfect. And he says, I know. It's beyond all the offerings and all the sacrifices. And so I did something for you that you never could have done on your own. And so that when, that when God looks at you, he sees me, that we are hidden in Christ. He looks at us and says, no, okay, it's not them anymore. They are new. They've been redeemed. They've been clean. They've been given a new life. And they've been given the power of the Spirit. Now we are empowered, not in our own strength, but through the gospel, through the power of the Spirit, to do something we never could have done on our own. Because he loved us first. And he loved us perfectly. Look to Jesus this morning. Consider his love this morning. Consider his sacrifice. Consider how much it, how much it cost him to love you. And it says, yet for the joy set before him. It was his joy. 
to endure the cross for us. And so he compels us out into this world to be people of love.